Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans, to chapter 4. This morning we'll study verses 18 through 25. Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 25, and here we close the chapter where the Apostle Paul introduces very specifically the doctrine of justification, which is by faith. That is, how a man, a woman, or a child might stand before God, not guilty, but righteous in the sight of a holy God. And specifically, with these closing verses, we return to Abraham. And this morning, we are considering his faith and our own. Let us read God's word and then study it together. In hope, he, that is Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. May we receive it with gladness and find within it the grace of salvation. Let's pray together. Lord, we have heard you speak in the Bible. And Lord, we pray that this morning we would receive what you have to say to each of us. Oh Lord, we ask that you would deal with our minds and with our hearts, that Lord, we would be able to give our full attention to you this morning. Oh Father in heaven, we ask for your help, oh Lord, for your mercy and for your grace. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. What is faith? You see, this is an important question. And it is one that the world presses us for all the time. And people, when asked the question, what is faith? They may answer it in a number of different ways. They may answer, well, it's rational assent to a truth. That could be what faith is. Maybe another person would describe faith in a more abstract manner, that it is a religious feeling or a spiritual emotion. And then others, critical of faith as an idea and as a thing in itself, might say that faith is only foolish superstition for the weak in mind and the feeble in heart. 
And here, friends, this morning, the Apostle Paul spends most of the chapter telling us specifically that faith and faith alone is how a person may stand before God. And so there is this aspect of what faith does before the eternal God of heaven. It is the means that the Lord has appointed for us to be called righteous, for us not to be consumed by his wrath. But up until this point, Paul hasn't taken faith and broken it into constituent parts. He hasn't tried to tell us a definition of what faith itself is. And that's what we have this morning, and he does so by encouraging us and inviting us to look at the faith of Abraham, and then also, in response, to look at our faith. And so the three things that I want us to see in the passage of Scripture, verses 18 and 19, the first is hope-filled faith. Hope-filled faith. In verses 20 and 21, doubtless faith. Doubtless faith, or faith without doubting. And then in verses 22 through 25, justifying faith. Justifying faith. And as we come to verse 18, we encounter a bit of a strange phrase. If you paid attention, as I read just a moment ago, it may have stood out to you. Paul writes about Abraham and his faith. He says, in hope, he believed against hope. In hope, he believed against hope. And so you may pick up the tension there that it sounds on an initial reading that Paul is saying a thing that contradicts itself, a thing that doesn't have unity within it. How can you hope against hope? It it almost bends the mind, but what he's expressing is a differentiation or a distinction within the faith of Abraham. He's saying essentially this, that Abraham hoped because he believed in something else even though he had no earthly reason to hope. Let me say that again. That Abraham hoped because he believed in something else whenever he had no earthly reason for his hope from a human or a rational standpoint. And the verse continues to explain what he means uh, with these words. In hope he believed against hope that what? That he should become the father of many nations. And as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. And so what's Paul talking about? He's looking again back into Genesis chapter 15 and to the promise of God regarding Abraham and his household. That the Lord would make him not just Abraham a father, but Abraham specifically the father of many people. In the language of the promise, so shall your offspring be, this is the language that the Lord said to Abraham whenever he told him, look at the night sky, look at all the stars. They're going to be more of your children than there are stars in the sky. They're going to be more of your children than there are grains of sand to be counted 
on all the seashores upon the earth. So shall your offspring be. And you have to think about this and put it into the context that Paul in verse 19 immediately invites us into. You see, that promise came to Abraham at old age. It didn't come to him whenever he was a spry and virile, 23-year-old, 30-year-old, or however year old. A man in his youth, reproductively. But rather, it came to him as a man who, we're told, was near 100 years old. Near 100 years old. That's the circumstance. Old age and a promise that he will have not just a son, but that his offspring will be numerous. That his quiver is about to be more than full. That he's going to be a man that knows what it is in every way to have a continuing legacy that never ends. Now it would be one thing, and it would even be enough of a thing, If it were just the case that Abraham himself were the old man in the relationship. But that's not the case, is it? It's Abraham and it's Sarah. And of course, you may be familiar that in the ancient world, men generally married uh, over a larger age gap. That you might have a man of 30 years old, maybe into his 40s, marrying a young girl of 13 to 15, maybe even so young as 12. That's quite culturally different than we have today. But let me simply say, even if you take that calculus and you lay it onto the biblical story, we are still speaking about a nearly 100-year-old Abraham and maybe a 90-year-old Sarah. Maybe a 90-year-old Sarah. Maybe an 80-year-old Sarah. If we really stretch our minds to the great limit that we could go, maybe a A 70-year-old sprite of a Sarah. But the text tells us something more. That Abraham considered his own body, as the ESV translates it, as good as dead. It's just one word in the Greek. He considered his body reproductively dead. It's the word nekromen. He considered there was no life there in the part of his physiology that would be necessary to have children. He knew it. He recognized this about himself. He wasn't in any delusion. There's not a sense as if in the ancient world men stayed in the ability to have children and to produce heirs well into 100 and 150 and 200 or however. No, no, no. Abraham saw the weakness of his flesh and the deadness of his ability to produce offspring. Not only did he see his own, but as the ESV says, he saw the barrenness of the womb of Sarah. And there again, the words are not divided. They're from the same root. And the language literally in the Greek is that of the womb of Sarah, there was necrosis. There was deadness. There is the impossibility, according to their human capacity, to produce children. That's what's being said in verses 18 
and 19. And so, we still read that even in the midst of that, and his full awareness of the limitation and the human physical impossibility of fertility, if I can use that sort of language with you, that he still had hope in the promise of God because he believed his word. He had hope. His faith was bound up in hope that whenever the Lord spoke to him and made a promise to him that he would be a father, that the word of God, this promise to him, was true. Something I want to point out to you before we go too far into that is this wonderful distinction about the faith that Paul's describing here. You know, again, if you would ask people in the world, what is faith? Maybe you would have someone say that it is blind adherence to something, right? Or ignorant adherence to a set of propositions. That's not what you see here. The eyes of Abraham's faith are wide open. He sees the circumstance of his body and his wife's body and the impossibility of it. But that's not all he sees. The eyes of the faith of Abraham that can allow him to be hopeful behold the character of God. You understand what I'm saying? That he can have hope not because of who he is or his capacity or his strength or his humanity. But because of the everlasting faithfulness of the God who has spoken to him and given him a promise. It's the character of God. That's why he can have hope. Somebody might ask me the question, how do you divide hope and faith? And let me say, that's a difficult question. But I would simply think that hope is in a thing that has not yet been had. It looks to the future. And it waits expectantly to receive what is promised. Abraham's faith can only have this kind of hope because of the kind of God who has spoken to him and given him a promise. And so friends, I want to tell you this morning that faith in the Christian life in the life of every child of God needs necessarily not to look inward if it is to have hope. If you and I consider the life that we live spiritually, we consider our own spiritual state And we want to have hope that would bolster our faith and help us day to day to live one more day, one more day, and another day, weeks and months and years, and to be secure in the promises of God. We can't look to ourselves. Whenever Abraham looked to himself, what did he find but inability and deadness? And friends, if you and I look to ourselves to have hope mixed with our faith, what are you going to find? If you are like me, you're going to find one occasion of sinful failure. You're going to find another occasion of sinful temptation that overwhelmed you. 
and another and another and another and a history that testifies against you and your heart's going to turn in on yourself and you're going to be like a Christian that might shout out in despair. I believe, but I am hopeless. So what would I point you to? I would point you to the character of your God. The character of the God who said simply this, I will be your God and the God to your children and your children's children to a thousand generations. Points you to the hope that this God, whenever he speaks, he does not lie. That he is good and he is filled with truth. And that he loves you and he's told you that he loves you. And he's not going to retract his love because he is a faithful God. And that you can hope in him and know that he is good. And know that even though you fail, he won't fail. And even know that you are unable to keep your heart and to keep yourself. That he is able to keep you. And that we have a God that can take the things that are impossible according to men and simply make them possible. Abraham had no reason to hope for children of himself except that God would do it. You know, Abraham's faith, if somebody were to press him and simply say to him, well, Abraham, that just sounds silly. How could it even remotely ever happen that you and Sarah could conceive? His answer could be no more and no less than this. I don't know how it will be, but I do know it will be because my God has promised me. I don't know how it will be, but I do know it will be because my God has promised me. His faith rests on the character of God. And that's how he can hope. And that's how you can hope. I don't know how I'm going to make it through next week or tomorrow. I don't know how my marriage is going to endure these bumpy and hard roads. I don't know how my children are going to live in this world and against these things. I don't know how I'm going to get the bills paid. I don't know how all these things are going to happen. But I do know and I do believe that my God has promised me that I am his and that he is mine. And that all things work together for the good of those Of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I know that. And I trust that. And I can hope in that. And I can hope today and I can hope tomorrow. And I can keep hoping with the assurance that I will receive what he has promised. Because he's greater than me. And he is faithful. Verses 20 and 21. We see doubtless faith. Doubtless faith. And so look down at these with me. Paul tells us no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You may translate it or even your translation would introduce the beginning of verse 20 differently. No unbelief made him waver. No doubt made him waver. And in the English language, there's fluidity, distrust, unbelief, 
and doubt are rough synonyms meaning the same thing one with the other. No unbelief shook him. No unbelief shook him, made him waver, made him fall. What a wonderful thing. And we look at this and we read about this great faith, this unshakable faith. That even though his body was as good as dead, biologically useless for the purpose of procreation. That even in the midst of that, even not knowing the plan of God and the method of God to bring these things into being. His faith remained And you may say, Pastor, it's good. I hear this and I'm with you. I'm impressed with the faith of Abraham, but I, I struggle with this kind of thing. I'm a rational person, Pastor. And I read this passage of Scripture. And I hear this account. And if I'm invited to put myself into the shoes of Abraham with his ears and to stand in his place with a body that hasn't the function to do this thing, I would doubt. And I would say, friend, you would have really good reason to doubt, wouldn't you? According to yourself, there would be no good reason. There would be no good reason to think that an 85-year-old, a 90-year-old, a 100-some-odd-year-old man or woman could have children. Can you think of a single occasion for anyone that you have known or ever heard of who is having children at that late and advanced a stage in the glory that is human life before the return of the Lord? No. There's an entirely different thing that we experience at those advanced ages, isn't it? Just recently, the passing of my grandmothers, both of them, one 87, the other 94, We gathered around the the grave. We praised God, not for the birth of a child, but the new birth of a believer in the hands of a Savior whose body would descend into the grave. We were celebrating and mocking death. We were expecting life in the face of deadness and death. We weren't throwing baby showers. We weren't bringing meals. For those who would celebrate, we were eating meals as mourners. So it makes good sense. We read this sort of thing and we think, wow, Abraham, he's a strange kind of guy. I don't know if I could do it. It seems like he's unshakable. Well, in my experience, I feel shaken all the time. I, I confess, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but I struggle with doubts. Is that your experience? Of course it is. Probably. If your pastor can tell on you and tell on himself, yes, we do. Yes, we struggle with doubts of a variety of sorts, whether it's in life or in faith, whether it's in the course of life when we doubt the certain things about our call, our place in life, whether it's doubts about our careers, whether it's doubts about our relationships with a spouse, whether it's doubts about our children, whether it's doubts about the world, whether it's doubts about government, all these other things under God. We struggle with doubts, don't we? Well, Paul would have us behold the source 
of Abraham's doubtless faith. It's not just that we end with the beginning of verse 20. No doubt, distrust, unbelief made him shake or waver concerning the promise of God. He continues, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Did you catch that last phrase? Look again. Verse 21, he was fully convinced that God was able, that he had power to do what he had promised for him. Again, faith, if it's going to be doubtless, can't look inward. It can't say, well, I can believe and I know that I'm going to believe because of how strong I am or because of how much I attend church or because of how often I read my Bible. All of those things are good and a help to your soul, but they cannot be the source of a doubtless faith. You can't turn inward. You have to behold the power of God who has given you promises and is able to bring them into the full gift of its fulfillment. That's quite simple. You may have looked at the title of the sermon, The Simplicity of Faith, and thought, wow, I don't know. The character and the power of God. The two core constituent things in the faith of a Christian. These aspects of saving faith. That's what's being looked at. That's what he's pointing to here this morning. And friends, this is something that Jesus taught. I mean, maybe you're a confused Christian and you think, well, that's what Paul said. Let's see what somebody else says. Well, let me tell you, the Bible coheres and it agrees with itself. And in Matthew chapter 19, verses 24 through 26, Jesus is teaching his disciples. You're probably familiar with it. The Lord said, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You ever see a camel? They're big. You ever see a needle? They're small. You ever try to put thread through a needle, a really small thread? It's hard. Try to do it with a camel. It's impossible, right? There's this impossibility stated, and Jesus is stating it about the kingdom of God. And what does he say? He says this, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus' disciples, whenever they hear this impossible statement, they say this to the Lord. Who then can be saved? If it's that impossible, if it's that circumstance, how's it possible? Jesus looked at them and he said simply this, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Now, whenever Jesus says this, is he saying, well, the Lord is really good at putting camels through needles? No. He's saying the impossible state of the heart of man that has no hope for heaven by itself, that could never 
be imagined to have the righteousness to enter into his presence. That impossible circumstance by the grace of God can be redeemed. We have a God who does things that are impossible for us that are always possible for him. And whenever Abraham considers the weakness and deadness of his loins, that is such a small thing for the power of his God. And friends, maybe you struggle with the things in life and you think of the impossibility of yourself and the impossibility of things you've trapped yourself in or things that you struggle with, all the things of who you are and you're just overwhelmed. But let me ask you this. Do you believe that God created you? Do you think that God created all things out of nothing without any debate or discussion about the length of days? Do you think God created all things out of nothing? Well, let me simply say, if he can do that, he can deal with your problems and he can also deal with your doubting heart. It's like nothing for him. If you're to have a faith that doesn't waver and doesn't doubt, it has to behold the power of the God of heaven. Verse 21, it says, he was convinced that God had power, not just ability, but power to give what he has promised. Do you believe that? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the promise to you. And do you have days and weeks and hours and late moments in the night where you wonder and you struggle and you doubt, can the Lord save such a wretch like me? Am I really his child? I want to point you to the power of a God who puts camels through needles if he should please, who creates all things. The God who gave the lifeless loins of Abraham and Sarah the power to give life to a son of promise. And a God who has power to redeem the dead. A God who has power to redeem the dead. God's power. God's character. Essential truths of faith. Thirdly, justifying faith, verses 22 through 25. And as we come to verse 22, we have a restatement of Genesis 15, 6. And we've already had this several times. I think this is the third time, at least, just in chapter 4, uh, that Paul points again and again uh, to uh, the book of Genesis. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, or accounted to him as righteousness. Imputed, this is the language given to him as righteousness. All of these things, the faith that didn't waver, the faith that had hope, this for him was what for for his life before the Lord would be called his righteousness. You may say, okay, well we've heard this whole chapter and pastor we've heard you get quite excited about this for some time now. Why is that so important? It's this stark fact. Our God is holy 
and you will stand before him one day. Every one of you. In faith or out of faith. Every man, every woman, every child who has ever lived is going to look him in the face. And you will stand before him in one of two very definite categories. You will stand before him as a son, as a daughter, as righteous, as justified, as beloved, crowned, clothed, with rings on your fingers, and a tongue that sings his praise, or you will stand before him condemned, an enemy of God, unholy, unfaithful, and deserving of eternal punishment. And that is the reality of this. And that is why it is so profoundly important that whenever Paul is focused here upon Abraham, the man who in himself did sin and sinned greatly, even giving his wife into the hands of a pagan pharaoh, that he would say, because of Abraham's faith, quoting Genesis, that the Lord accounted him as righteous. That Abraham believed and so he could stand before his God. That he believed and he was not an enemy of the Lord. That he believed and all the weight of his sins were covered. And all the debt of his transgression paid. Because he believed in the Lord. And in the simple promise that he gave to him. Once again returned to. And you may say, but pastor, you know, I'm keeping on. I'm, I'm reading on with you. And the text tells me this, that he was accounted uh, as righteous because of his faith in the promise. And pastor, you've already told me about that promise that he had. The promise that God would make him the father of many nations. And that his children would be numerous. I get it. I understand that. But that's not the same promise that's held out to me. I'm not Abraham. I'm not some guy in the ancient Near East. I'm not some father of many nations. I'm just Jane, Jack, or Jill that lives here. I'm just a normal person. And this thing seems so far from me. How is this promise that gave gave him righteousness? How does this meet me at all? And friends, I want to tell you very simply this. Abraham believed in the shadow of what we have in the full man. Let me unpack this for a second. His faith was in a promise that his dead loins would live and that the Lord would give him a living son. Do you understand? He believed in a God who made dead things live. He trusted in him and held on to him and clung to him. And the truth of this, and I want to tell you very simply, friends, that same promise is the gospel. It's not only that Abraham had a God that made dead loins to live, but that he gave his son to die in the place of dead people that we would live Abraham had only a peace and only a shadow and yet his faith had hope and it did not waver and it did not shake and it did not doubt. You and I have the full picture and figure of the pierced hands and the feet and the empty grave. 
It's not only the possibility of a, of a life in the part of us, but in the whole of us, body and soul, and the promise of a life to come that can never be taken nor die. And Paul says that faith justified Abraham. And that verse, that his faith was counted to him as righteousness, it's not just for Abraham to strengthen him, but it's also for us. It's to say to you and to me that it's not just Abraham in a unique situation with a strange time of life and a strange time in the history of the people of God that he experienced a unique grace, but that that same grace is for you and it is for me that we can stand before God holy and righteous if we would believe in the one who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Your faith has an object and it is Jesus. It is Jesus and the Father who was pleased to make him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the two pieces of verse 25? What does his cross accomplish as Paul puts it before us in the thing that we ought to rejoice over? That Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. On the cross, mercy was accomplished. Our sins and the punishment for them was put to death. And all of the bowl of God's wrath wasn't just simply poured out, but it was drunk by the spotless prince. And he died in our place. Our trespasses have entirely been dealt with in the body and the blood of our Lord. But it's not just all the former things. But it's this other wonderful truth that you should believe in and rejoice that Jesus was raised for our justification. It's not just that your sins have been paid for, but now you can stand holy in the face of God. Not just not guilty, but righteous in Jesus when he's raised from the dead, there's this wonderful testimony that death could not hold him. And that everything that is his has been given to us. Christian, would you rejoice in this Christ? Would you cling to the faith of the God of heaven that gives life to dead things? And friend, if you don't know him, would you trust on him for the first time? A God who redeems even those who feel hopeless, who are filled with doubt, and who gives them eternal life and righteousness and a place before his throne. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the gospel in Romans. We thank you for Abraham's faith. That, Lord, you are Abraham's God and ours. The same yesterday and today and forever. Lord, help us to cling to you and your promises in the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in the Lord Jesus' name.
Amen.